Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Julia Gillard, and this is a podcast of one's own. I'm offended by the lack of women in positions of leadership and the way those that do make it are treated. Today, I help lead the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London, headquartered in the Virginia Woolf Building. In 1929, Virginia said she aspired for women authors to have the space to write in a room of one's own. Here, I want women leaders to have a podcast of one's own. My guest today is a feminist who's a force to be reckoned with. She seems to collect university qualifications and has a law degree, two masters, a PhD and an executive MBA. Amazingly, she was only 19 when she completed her first qualification. She now practices as a lawyer in the US and UK and routinely speaks about and organises against sexism and racism. She's an inspirational woman, and her example should encourage all of us to get out there and make a difference. I'm talking about Dr. Shola Mozshog Bamimu. Shola, you once said you live in a world where the colour of your skin is used to define you and set boundaries around you. And you've also said that racism is another form of slavery, just without visible chains. When you were growing up in Lagos, Nigeria, what was your experience of race? There was no such experience, you know, not for me. And my experience growing up was very much that of a child doing what needs to be done. You go to school, you have a childhood. Um, my parents, I, I recall, and I think I, I can appreciate it more because I'm older now. But the way I was brought up, it never occurred to me, for instance, if I saw a white person that there was something extra special about them. They were just another person. So much so that I recognize that when I'm older, if I walk into a room, I don't immediately recognize that I'm the only black person in the room or that I'm the only woman in the room. None of that registers. And I think that has something to do with how, how I was brought up. In fact, the only thing that truly registers is that Shola has arrived, right? Because that's the only thing that matters. <laughs> I'm here now, people, what's up? <laughs> But as a child growing up, my, my values were very much rooted in being the best that I could be. My father was a feminist. I don't think he would have used the word feminist to describe himself, but everything he did is definitely how you would describe a feminist. He always said to me, you know, spread your wings and fly. Go do what you need to do. He never understood the concept of a housewife. There's nothing wrong with being a housewife, but he never understood the concept. He was always like, have kids, get married. Get a job, run a business, do whatever you want to do. 
delegate the things you need to delegate. So, you know, back in Nigeria, you could have a home, you could have a driver, you could have someone who works for you. So there's certain things you can delegate. So for him, it's like, if you have people you can delegate certain things to, that doesn't stop you from getting up and going out there and doing what you need to do. I also remember when I was about to do my, um, I just finished my PhD. Oh, oh God, Father, thank you. In fact, it was <laughs> close by here because um, my viva was at one of the LSE buildings. And I remember going totally Nigerian on the supervisors who examined me. Because, they, in fact, they just went, oh, we very much, this is me ready to defend my work. Like, long enough you know blah 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 and they're like oh we really really like your work we have no amendments no revisions to oh, make congratulations really? oh my word you know what i did god bless you god <laughs> bless your children and your children's children i was i just went totally i mean i remember coming out of the building screaming to my husband oh my god it's done it's done <laughs> but i remember speaking to my father and this was a few months i was not to know that this was going to be a few months before it would pass away I said to him, you know, I really want to do an MBA, but by this time I had two kids as well, and I had a full-time job, and yada, yada. he said, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, you will do it, you will do it, okay, don't worry about it. But I was thinking, oh, I feel tired, and I have still so much to do on my list, my mental list. He said, don't worry about it, you want to do the MBA, you go and do it, not a problem. And then he passed away in the January, and I remember I was four months pregnant. This is me thinking... He was 64 when he passed away. I realized I could not rest on my laurels for some reason. I went, 64 is very young. So if I want to do anything, I better just do it now. You know, just get on with it because I was going to take some time, relax, and then maybe get on with it because I was working and all of that. And immediately I applied to do the MBA at Cambridge. It was the only one, uh, only university I applied to. It was the only university I wanted to do it at. I got accepted, but I was asked to do the GMAT because usually you have to do GMAT to do, um, to get the GMAT score. Can you imagine I had a full-time job? I had two kids. I was pregnant, yada, yada. So I wrote them a, a detailed letter as to why my experience and present qualifications suffices for whatever they require. I don't want to do the GMAT right now. <laughs> and they came back and they accepted. And they accepted my, and I, that, I, that for me, I think, goes back to my childhood as well and my faith which is, you know, always do your best, work hard, and have faith in yourself. A lot of that growing up, I didn't experience racism in Lagos. You know, not like that. There was, I never got a sense of I am different from somebody else because of the color of my skin. You know, I had to deal with more things like I'm a girl or you're a boy. What can girls do? What can, um, you know, girls do? But fortunately, I had parents who believed in me and my siblings, and there was never any differentiation between, or oh, because you're a girl, you can't do this. Societal perceptions were there, but my father and my mother were very much, no, you can do whatever you set your mind to do. And going to those societal perceptions, can you remember a moment where, you know, for the first time, maybe in a school room or a community group, the penny dropped that people treat girls differently. It's whether or not I clued into it as quickly as I should have. <laughs> I don't know what you were like when you are younger, but I remember younger, there were certain things I cared about and there were certain things I just didn't care about, right? And if it did not impact my immediate enjoyment of a good book or good food 
or it wasn't getting on my nerves. I might not have really paid attention to it. But I think it was really more when I left home to come do my first degree. And so your first degree, just we've got so many degrees, I think we need to try and put them in some time order. Obviously, you grew up in Nigeria and then you went where to do your first degree? So I did my first degree here in London. My first degree is in law and at the University of Buckingham. I was born here in in the United Kingdom. My parents traveled a bit. We also lived in the States for a bit. But my father, was he always said this even when I grew older. He's like, in my country, I'm always a first-class citizen. So his idea mentality was always, well, we'll go back home and we'll do what we have to do. So I'm so grateful that I had the opportunity to grow in Lagos. So I did part of my primary school education, my secondary school education in Lagos. But I think it wasn't until... I was here in the UK for my first degree. I was 17 at that time. That a penny dropped about how the perceptions on girls, on women. And I think the reason the penny dropped is because I wasn't home where my parents would have shielded me or protected me from certain things, right? I would go do what needs to be done. I would always be shielded from certain things, right? But here in university, quite frankly, you're an adult and you're on your own, right? So it was pretty much how... Things like, um, I remember, this was with other students, but I remember this uh, production we were meant to put on. I was going to be one of the actresses on it. But very, the way, glamorous. Uh, very, very glamorous. Very glamorous, I know. Yes. I, I got through it to the end, but uh, which was fun. The way I remember being treated as a girl compared to others when they had a disagreement with the guy directing the thing was very different. I, I wondered... What's the problem? Is it me? And I realized there was that thing about, oh, she's a girl. You know, we can speak to her anyhow. It took me a while to understand because at first I thought it was me. And I realized it wasn't just me. It's also because what I'm saying is exactly what this person said. But this person is not being treated the same way because he's a guy. But the response I'm getting is such disdain. And then that's just one of the examples. Other things were cropping up. I was like, this doesn't look or sound right. And because at that age, it was the first time I was facing such things as you would probably call sexism or misogyny. It ticked me the heck off. Absolutely. But I think I needed to find my voice. What was my voice? And my voice was not just to get annoyed about it or be emotional about it. You know, you know, us women, we get angry about something. All of a sudden we're emotional. No, we are not emotional. We are are expressing our displeasure at the event itself. That kind of opened my mind. So when it was now time to look for work, I remember finishing my degree, going to LPC, doing my LPC, and you're, you know, looking for work. And the kind of experiences I had in the workplace, I went, aha, okay, I'm understanding better what all these things are. I'm hoping that with my three girls, because I have three girls, that I'm hoping that as they're growing older now, that I would do a better job in letting them know this exists so that when they're anywhere without mommy or daddy, they will recognize it for what it is. I remember being in a supermarket in the university town. As I approached the till, the reaction of the cashier was to immediately go, now, you know, I don't want to serve you. But there was something there was something so wrong. You know, it, it wasn't I don't want to serve you because I have clothes. There was something about how she said it to me that immediately within my spirit I knew this is not because I'm a customer, it's because of something else. 
and I couldn't put my finger on it immediately, but my gut told me it was wrong. Again, remember, I didn't grow up facing racism in Lagos or in it. And it, it took me a while to realize that even the way she was speaking to me and the way she looked at me, and she made, she made several comments that made me realize it was the color of my skin. Mm. I went, okay. I couldn't now pick up the phone and call, but daddy, can you believe that? <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I called my dad loads of times to vent about God knows how many things. But these were things that, you know, they kind of creep up on you and then you have to find your way to address them. When I was younger, I was one of those people, because I was brought up to be very polite, my gut reaction to say something, I will hold it back because I did not want to come across as impolite. I didn't want to hurt the other person's feelings. So that's not happening now. <laughs> that's not happening now. I want to talk to you about finding your voice. Yeah. But before we do that, let's just get the formal CV out there. So you uh, come as a very young, I would say girl, 17, I think I'm entitled yes, to yes, say girl. Yes, yes. You come and study here in the UK, you get your law degree. You then practice as a lawyer for a period of time. So I got my first degree. Then you have to, to go through law school. Right. So I got through law school. While I was doing law school, I practiced. I got experience along the way. It could be a whole documentary about my whole experience trying to get work. But it, it turned out to be really valuable for me because I got to find out what area of law I like and what area of law I don't want to practice. So I figured out that as, as passionate as I am about people's lives and making sure justice prevails, criminal law was not for me because I'll be too passionate. Mm. I'm, I would be one of those people that will carry my work home and the world will not hear the end of it. And I realized that I enjoyed commercial or corporate law far more. I knew I wouldn't do administrative law. I did all these little bits and, and I finally realized which area of law that I liked, which was really good. I did my law school. I also did then my master's degree in diplomatic studies because I wanted to do something slightly different from law and I've always loved um, international relations but when I applied either I was too late or I applied for international relations and I didn't get it so I did the next one I thought looked really interesting as close to international relations as possible which is diplomatic studies which was absolutely fascinating at um, University of Westminster. Loved it, loved it, loved it, loved it. The only thing law there, if I recall, was international law. And then I did my law degree in um, commercial and corporate law. Now, throughout this time, I was working. I did that, then it was time to get, in this country, when you, you do the LPC to become a solicitor, but you need to have a training contract. You need to have two years training contract. Oh, Lord, I applied and applied and applied. And it was such a journey. Of course, it was very competitive. You get only so much. It's only much later that I realized that as a black woman in this country, things like my name, things like even getting through the first step of the um, interview, you come across as you know likable, they like you on paper, but all these roots of why it's difficult or their challenges for more and more black women to get through, especially those of, you know, African descent, all of that were things that girls like me would have faced. But you see, I didn't let that stop me because again, the way I was brought up, my attitude is 
I know there's statistics out there that say, okay, you know what, because you're black, because you're, you know, you're BAME, there's only, this is what it looks like um, for ethnic minorities. My attitude has always been that no statistics has met me yet. So I have to (laughs) do the best that I can do. But it was a journey and I learned from it. So I qualified as a New York attorney, which immediately made me, you know, an attorney because you don't need any training contract for that. And then I qualified here. Ah, okay. So I went over there and then could bring it back here. Exactly, exactly. And now I mentor law graduates, you know, they reach out to me and say, this is what I'm planning to do. And I'm like, don't worry, everything's going to be okay. Because I wish to God I had had someone like me to tell me, here are your options. Nobody was there to tell me, here are your options. I had to work it out myself and find out the long way. And then I did my PhD and this will crack you up. During my PhD, so my PhD should have taken me like three years. I think I ended up doing it about five or so years, in which time I had two kids. (sighs) And it's very good going. Yes. <laughs> Lots of people take a lot longer than that to do their PhD without having the children as well. I, 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 when I had a baby, I would take a, you know, a few months break and then get back to it. But then I was still determined to get it through. I remember one day, I think it was in my workplace, I had to submit another chapter to my supervisor. And she wanted me to read something in philosophy or God knows where. And my, my thesis was on corruption. I remember going to the toilet at work, putting my head in my head in my hands, going, Shola, in the name of God, who sent you? Why on top of everything else you have to do? Are you piling this on? But I knew I wanted to do it. I needed to go through this pain to be able to get to the other side of it. So I remember having friends who dropped out of law school because they had to receipt papers. I had to receipt papers. I kid you not, I remember calling my father, venting on the phone. I said, I can't believe I filled this paper. God knows what, what it was. It was it conveyancing? I hated conveyancing. I can't believe I did it. And then I vented because, you see, it was messing up my plans. The plan was to do this so I could do something else, and then I could do something else. I said, it's holding me back. I can't believe. Can you go? This is my father in Lagos. So this is me venting. He goes, are you done? I said, yes, 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 daddy, yes, yes. This is me now expecting, okay, tell me what to do. Tell me, tell me, what do we do? My father goes, well, you should be grateful that you're going through this in your early 20s and you're not facing this when you're 40. What kind of (laughs) advice is that? Are you not hearing what I just said to you? This is messing up my plans. And I don't understand how those other people passed it. I worked just as that. I said, there's no point complaining about it. What you have to do is get back to it, work hard, and pass it. And he said, Shola, listen to me. Success has lots of brothers and sisters. When you are done, all people will see will be the full package. It will not be written on your forehead how long it took. Do you know that has stayed with me Mm. for over 20 years since he said it? I mean, it resonates so strongly. So now when people reach out to me and go, oh my God, Shola, you've done so much. Oh my God, you've achieved so much. First of all, I'm surprised that they notice, right? And I'm like, oh, wait, hold up a second. No, 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 no. Let me tell you the journey. Don't be, don't be moved by what looks like the accomplishments. No, no, no. Let me tell you how I had to receipt exams. Let me explain to you how I put my head in my hands going, what in God's name am I doing with this PhD? I've got so much to do, blah, blah, blah. Let me tell you about the times I, I had to cry to be able to get through to the other side. So please don't be overly impressed. Listen to the journey and let the journey inspire you. 
rather than the end product, if that makes sense. Absolutely. But no one is saying to you any longer, what about that conveyancing? No oh, one's doing that. <laughs> nobody is. Now, in, in this journey, when did you brought up to be a polite girl, polite young woman, who presumably if confronted with conduct, whether it was sexist or racist, your immediate sort of reaction would have been to just still be polite. When in this journey did you find your voice? When would you have said to yourself, for example, I get it, I want to be a feminist, this is a world that has a system that influences women's lives and limits their choices? When would have that moment have been? God, I, I wish I could pinpoint what the moment was, but what I can probably share with you is it was a series of moments. My voice was there. That voice doesn't just come up from nowhere. It's always been there. And um, it may come up in certain circumstances, but in the majority, I would always remember, it's like my mother is talking to me, mm, shall I behave yourself, okay? <laughs> um, but gradually, I think the more I got ticked off, and that's the thing with me, I, I realized that my trigger is when I get really ticked off about something. That's when I go, you know what, bring it. And it got to that point for me when I realized that I was tired of, so there's certain personal things. I was one of those people in my early 20s, if someone upset me, I might say something, but when I get home, I wish I'd said more. Mm. That used to give me such a headache. So gradually, I made up my mind. I'm not going to do that anymore. You be the one to go home and wish you had said something to me because I'm going to tell you exactly what I think right now. Shola is not going home wishing she had said ABC. That is not happening again. There's still a jump between finding that voice and that confidence to navigate your own life, even if it brings you into what can be an uncomfortable conversation with someone in authority. There's a jump between that and being out there in the media and as a public person. Can you talk to me about how you made that jump? What inspired you to do that? Why? Okay, so what triggered me was that I really, really got ticked off. Did I tell you that (laughs) my trigger is being ticked off? In, in, in Australia, Australia, I think we'd use a, a different word than I know, off. I know. We're more likely to say pissed off, actually. That's actually but... what I would say, pissed off. <laughs> that, that is actually it. Because the jump for me came from um, the impact, the negative impact on the quality of life and choice of people. That honestly just makes my blood boil. And I'm not talking about how something affects me because I realize when something affects me, yeah, I'll say something. I might even sound angry, but I'm furious when it affects somebody else. And that for me was the huge jump. Understanding how there's so many voiceless in this world. It breaks my heart when I see the injustice, you know, meted out to people who can't speak up for themselves or when they try to, they're knocked out. It absolutely pisses me off and that that is actually what got me more I suppose visible in not restraining my my thoughts in how I feel about certain things be it in politics culturally socially things like that I would just open my mouth say something needs to be said my daughter I I don't know if you were at the match for women my 13 year old came out with me for the first time and um, she joined the march she heard me speak. And you know what she said to me afterwards? She said, Mommy, wow, finally, your shouty voice has a purpose. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great praise from the 13-year-old. I know, she's like, 
fine now i see where your 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 voice has finally found its purpose somewhere so so, so mo- motivated by this giving a, a voice to people who struggle to have their perspectives heard you've necessarily taken some risks though haven't you yeah. i mean for we know i mean all of the research shows and i've talked to women about this a lot on the podcast the lived experience is if you step out and put a view you become publicly known yeah. uh, the social media the analysis of you the pushback yes, can be yes. pretty extreme mm-hmm. how have you experienced that it has been unrelenting online abuse they seem to be able to find me somehow. So not just my DMs on Twitter or Facebook. They they find my email. They go through my website, find me on YouTube. I get messages, you monkey, you ugly woman, or oh, you're a joke. One of the things that interests me is how now when they can't seem to get at me because they're not getting the response they want, they go, Shola, we know you can't possibly believe what you say. I'm like, how can anybody meet me and hear me speak and think that I don't believe what I say? I say what I say for, I don't know, public scrutiny and um, some kind of fame. And that's not how it works. But I'll be honest with you, what helps me a lot through this is my faith. I'm a Christian. So, for instance, when I remember the first time I saw the um, one of those ugly messages, oh, you ugly woman, you're this and that. I suppose my first reaction was, do I know this person? No, you don't know me. But you've decided that because you can't debate me on the merit of my words, you want to attack me physically. All this went through my head in a nanosecond because in the same nanosecond, my faith reminded me, you know, using the words of the Bible, that I am wonderfully and fearfully made by God. I don't need you to tell me I'm fine because I know I'm fine. Because <laughs> God told me I'm fine, so I'm good. And I think it comes with the territory, shouldn't, abuse should not come with it, but we know it comes with it. I'm fine with people not agreeing with me. Goodness, how, I mean, what kind of lawyer would I be if I'm not ready to deal, deal with people on the other side who think differently for me? What I find is that they cannot handle the fact that I can speak my mind and defend my opinion the way that I do. Perhaps there's this expectation that if we pour enough abuse on her, she will shut up, not understanding that it will actually achieve the exact opposite. Because when I say what I say, I don't say it for me. I say it because of others who are experiencing the pain, the injustice and inequality, women, ethnic minorities, the economic inequality experienced by so many, the irresponsible incompetence of our current government. And I will call it out as I find it. And people seem to think that because I passionately defend what I think, so I will speak passionately. I don't know how to do otherwise. Right? <laughs> I think I was born screaming passionately out of my mother. And if you step just a little back from the politics of today and perhaps look at the the years since you first came here as a 17-year-old to mm-hmm. study, what is better and what is worse about race and sexism? Looking at the UK across those years, is it better, is it worse? What do you think? It's, it's definitely not better. I think the only main difference is that we are much more vocal about it. Women are much more, from my perspective, what I see is that we're much more confident and louder about talking about it. We refuse to be put down as a hush-hush, you know. Women are calling it out in a way that we didn't 20 years ago and we did not 10 years ago. Does not mean that women were not calling it out then, but right now it's almost like the Me Too movement. There's 
totally giving us a whole different paradigm shift. So younger girls are talking about it. My 13 year old daughter is talking about it in a way that we didn't before. The silence, you know, the wall of silence is broken. That's what I see. And I think we are fighting hard to ensure that the so-called policies that organizations are meant to have to address issues of sexism and misogyny, laws that are meant to protect us from discrimination, actually bear the fruit that they're meant. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. De Beer. And how important is role modelling? You've clearly identified that as important in the law because you've established a program to promote women and diverse leadership in the legal profession. How important do you think role modelling is? How important's it been for you? How important do you think it is for your 13-year-old daughter for the next generation? Okay, so the first thing I'll say is that I want people to understand that your first role model is always you. When people ask me, oh, is so-and-so your role model? I have women that have inspired me. I truly admire their strength, their resilience. But again, I think through my journey, I realized that my first role model is actually me. The person that I compete against each year as my birthday comes up is actually me of the last year. Like, wait, Shola, what have we done this year? You know, how productive have we been? But it is inspiring and motivating to find other women who are disrupting the status quo, breaking down the boundaries, because it says to me, it says to all of us, including my 30-year-old, that if they can do it, we can do it too. When you're given an opportunity at work, or I don't know, maybe you're invited to come sit on a board, and then, you know, you kind of feel, oh, the only reason I've been asked is because I'm a woman, or the only reason I've been asked is because I'm a black woman, or the only reason I've been asked is because, you know, I have disability. I say, it doesn't matter why you've been asked. In fact, that is the most irrelevant part of the whole equation. What matters is what you do with what you've been given. That is all that matters. So that is my attitude, because if they thought, for instance, well, let's give it to her, that would help shut everybody up about, hey, we don't have a woman, right? Then you come in, you use what you've been given to open the floodgates. Ooh, they'll be going, what were we thinking? We thought she was a nice, quiet, well-dependable one. We didn't know she was going to be a troublemaker. Yes! You open up the floodgates so more women like you come through. They're like, oh, we were planning for this. Suckers, that's what we do. You know, we disrupt the status quo. <laughs> I, I like that. I mean, the law, your media commentary, women in leadership, mentoring for other women, it's a very full agenda. What will the next five, ten years be for you? I'm about to find out. <laughs> I, I, I wish to God I knew. One of the things I've realized in the last couple of years is to have an open mind. So at the beginning of each year, what I do is I write down what my goals. I'm sure everybody does something similar. I write down my goals for the year. And 
I look at my goals of the previous year and see what I didn't get to do and see if I still want to do it. If I do, okay, let me move it to this year. If I don't want to do it, I'm like, huh, I've moved on. Something else better came. But my faith teaches me to have an open mind because if I only set my mind on the things I want, I've written down to do, I find that I don't see the other opportunities that may come my way and they could just be as wonderful. Just because I've not thought of them doesn't mean that it's not meant to be, right? And a couple of years ago, I just said keeping an open mind. So when people approach me with certain opportunities, I'm like, you know, that never crossed my mind to do. And then I find that I'm really good at it and it's so much fun. I'm like, fantastic, let's do that. So at the next five, 10 years, I'm trusting in God. I said, well, the thing for me is to continue to support and help. I, I hope a whole lot more people than I've ever done before because that's what my heart is, is at. One of the things that really hurts me is, you know, when I hear stories of young girls who, you know, in, in different in other countries who desperately want to have an education but cannot afford to. And as one who is an academic enthusiast, I understand that what they want to do is break away from whatever it is that their family has been through. Maybe they will be the first to go to university. They don't want to follow through into becoming a housemaid or having to go get married so that they can exist on something. That I want to do something and I want to do something, so many things, all in my heart and in my head. So I, I'm trusting in God that even the things that I've not thought of yet that I get to do in this next five, ten years, one of the things I tell my daughters, because I asked my oldest when she was younger, I said, so what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be an author. And it's true. Her head is always full of characters. She's always writing a book. If you see her smiling, it's because she's just done something with a character. So I'm like, okay, very good. But I need you to focus and pass your exams, okay? So I said, okay, you want to be an author. That's excellent. Comma, what else? I said, mommy, I told you I want to be an author. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll be an author. But comma, what else? She said, what do you mean? I said, sweetheart, there are too many commas in your life, okay? So you can be an author. You can be she loves animals you can be a vet comma you can be a businesswoman comma all of these things so don't think being an author is just it no you can be so much more just like fine 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 but I, next five ten years let's watch this space i'm excited <laughs> <laughs> let's think big yes. uh, now you've mentioned your faith a few times some would think that there's a contradiction between feminist philosophy and outlook and some of the teachings of faith how do you see that I suppose, first of all, my life experience is not a philosophy. Being a feminist is not a, it's not a theoretical thing I'm putting into practice. It's just who I am. My faith is not a philosophy I'm putting into practice. It is part and parcel of who I am. I don't do religion. I find a lot of the impositions of religion really self-imposed patriarchal, sense of what should be done you know as a christian my faith i have a i have a relationship with god that's how i say it so i wake up in the morning and go hey father what's up that that's my relationship with god so I, i'm not sitting out somewhere going oh i better pray this way or you know brimstone and fire no 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 that's not that that's not what that's not my relationship with god right and i know for a fact so when people sometimes have this this when they say to other people oh you can't do that you're a christian that's not the way to do it this is what god says if you're a christian you have to be this kind of christian you have to be a catholic or you have to be baptist and say look this is my understanding 
I have this really funny feeling that when we all die, yes, which we all will at some point, and we meet our maker, I have this funny feeling that there's going to be no special gates for Catholics, no special gate for Muslims, no special gate for Jews. We will all be there together. And in my, in my heart of hearts, I honestly feel God is going to say, yeah, so what did you do with what I gave you? You can, you can go, oh God, you know, I'm a Christian, not just a Christian, I'm a Catholic. You go, yeah, you all believe, right? Your faith, what did you do? What difference did you make? How did you demonstrate love? Were you love to people? I think that is where he's going to be coming from. Oh, my, my daughter's corrected me on this one. I overheard a conversation in which my seven-year-old went, you know, people should call God a she. I didn't butt in, but I was nodding my head. And then my 10-year-old goes, no, God is gender neutral. <laughs> I'm like, I think we're doing something right here. <laughs> but the thing is, I'm comfortable referring to God as he. But I also understand that God is neither he nor she. You see what I mean? So I think it's important for people to understand that faith is a very personal thing. But yeah, I think we need to do more as feminists to support each other without feeding into the negative narrative that the patriarchy already imposing on us, if that makes sense. But to your question about faith and feminism, for me, I am one and the same and it's personal to me. We always end these podcasts with a standard set of questions. We've taken to putting to people a fact, and here's your fact to respond to. At the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, we publish research with Ipsos Mori for International Women's Day this year, which showed that over a quarter of men around the world thought it was okay to tell jokes of a sexual nature in the office and one in 10 thought it was acceptable to display content of a sexual nature at work. Mm. Do those figures surprise you? No. No? Not at all. I think it only reflects, it, it reflects society, you know, the practice, the culture. That's what it does, right? Men have been doing this from time immemorial. Women have had to put up with it for the longest time. And then when we make noise about it now, it, we're seen as though we're troublemakers. Some of us don't want to ruffle any feathers. We just want to do our work, earn our pay, and go home. So if that means, you know, for a lot of women, if that means greening and bear it, that's what they do. But the problem with that, and don't get me wrong, I totally understand, because sometimes you just have to pick your battles. But the problem with that is that those same men will be the same ones that will end up being in the boardroom, CEO position, CEO position, they'll be the one making decisions that impact the quality of life of the female employees. And because they think something is okay, imagine what they think about policies that will be necessary to improve the choices, the benefits of their female employees. So if you don't check them in place when they're not yet in the fullness of their power, how are you going to do that when they get to that top job? So I think we need to be much more active in saying something. What's the worst misogyny you've had to deal with in your life? I think or probably what comes to my mind is what I've seen other women experience. Again, my first reaction is always to go to what other people. And I've heard some really awful things that women have experienced in the workplace to such an extent that they've had to leave work because it's really uncomfortable to work there and it's impacted their ability to get promoted. Basically, if you don't toe the line, 
you don't get promoted. If you don't get promoted, you don't earn more. And we know women are the primary caregivers, right? Whether it's of their children or their family members, their parents. So that kind of misogyny, it really, really pisses me off, especially when it inevitably leads to discrimination at work, sex discrimination at work. It leads to, and I've seen this with some people that I've worked with, when I say work with, within my advocacy and activism work, where it's led to them being nearly raped. And then they don't have the money to take their employers to court. And for some of them, they suffer such significant mental health issues that impacts their career and how they can go ahead and get better job and better money. Uh, it's, it's, it's awful. It's really bad. But if anything, their experience tells me I cannot afford to be silenced. I cannot afford to be quiet. So come what may, as long as I'm alive, this mouth that God has given me is going to keep talking. If anyone's going to be silenced, it will not be me. If you had all the power in the world in your hands just for a few moments, what would be the one thing you would change for women? Ah, does it have to be one thing? Yeah, try try and do one thing. I I might let you sneak in, you know, (laughs) an extra one. (laughs) I think money to me is a defence. I know we hear, oh, the love of money is the root of all evil. Pack that to one side. Money is a defence. So what I would do if I had the power to do so would be to putting laws, policies and have consequences where such policies and um, laws are breached. But the purpose of the, the laws and policies would be to give women the financial and economic growth and empowerment they need in business. So no more of that nonsense sexism that female entrepreneurs experience when they try to get funding for their businesses. In welfare benefits, none of this nonsense about, oh, you know, because you've only got two, you know, you can only have two kids, anything else, uh, you have to fund for yourself. I think it has to be much more sensible. But the way that it's been divided, that you can only get certain types of benefits without recognizing, for instance, that if you're looking for work, you're also, you know, you need help with other things, with your kids, child care, especially for working mothers. Women want to have a career. There are women who want to have a career. There are women who want to be stay-at-home moms, and thank you, God, for them. But there are women who want to have a career, and money is usually the key thing that either stops them from moving on in their career because they end up spending all their money on childcare. So childcare needs to be much more affordable. So money, money for me would be this big embodiment to address a lot of the issues because if women have financial independence, please girl, we will rock this world in a way that we never have. And it means we'll also have access to justice. We can pay to deal with a lot of the discrimination that we experience. So money, that's the defence right there. Virginia Woolf says, it is far more difficult to murder a phantom than a reality. Shola says? (laughs) Shola says, it is far more important to be unapologetically you than to apologise and to defend who you are. I say just be unapologetically you in everything you have to do because you are enough. 
I love that. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you. you. I was having so much fun. <laughs> oh my goodness. You've been listening to a podcast of one's own with Julia Gillard from the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London. For more information on our work and to sign up to our updates, visit the Global Institute for Women's Leadership website. This podcast has been produced by Lizzie Ellen and James Miller with Kings Online and additional editing by Nick Hilton. If you've liked what you've been listening to, please rate and review us with your preferred podcast provider and come back next time for another episode of A Podcast of One's Own with Julia Gillard. Gillard.